being a school principal might just be the most interrupted job on the planet. Every celebration, classroom party, and great lesson in the school, you're invited. Every difficult conversation with a parent whose child is not behaving or with a teacher who's chronically late to work, you're there too. And every emergency in the building with 500, 1,000, 2,000 people in it, it's your emergency. And on top of all that, you are responsible every day for the safety of the world's most precious asset, our children. How do they do it? We're here to find out, here in the principal's office. Hi, I am Jeff Gorski, and I want to welcome you to the Principal's Office Podcast, a podcast dedicated to teaching and accelerating the principles of school leadership. As charter school consultants, we get to ask teachers, principals, board members how they're going about building their school of choice, then pass on the best tips, tricks, and trends from the most accomplished public charter school leaders around with the hope that you can apply what you hear to help your school community. If you like what you hear, Please learn more about what we do at Leaders Building Leaders, where we aim to be the difference maker in the leadership development of individuals and organizations. We work across the charter school landscape in all of North Carolina to support the governance, academics, operations, and leadership of schools that want to grow. Learn more about us at leaders-building-leaders.com. For this month's episode, we hosted Dr. Les Stein, who came to see us at our new office in Nightdale, North Carolina, to talk about leadership. Dr. Stein is a retired colonel in the Marine Corps and has been a school leader at charter and private schools in Raleigh, Durham, and Burlington, North Carolina. Dr. Stein currently teaches at Meredith College and at Northeastern University in Boston. He is also the author of an amazing book, Education Disrupted, which is available on Amazon, in which he discusses the school transformation process, one that he saw through in two failing schools with great results. Together, we talked about school leadership versus military leadership, what it takes to turn around failing schools, and what Dr. Stein likes to focus on when building a staff and a culture. Dr. Stein is a wealth of knowledge, and we are pleased to bring you on the Principal's Office podcast, our conversation with Dr. Les Stein. Welcome, Dr. Stein. Thank you for joining us on the Principal's Office podcast. It's a pleasure to have you. Uh, We have been long fans of your book, Education Disrupted and uh, a couple articles we've read. Um, But what I really want to start off by asking you is, as you have uh, in your pocket a history in school leadership and a history in military leadership, what can you tell us uh, is the same or different about leading a school versus leading in the military? Well, and that's a great question. Um, There's really not a significant difference between the two. The fundamentals are going to be the same. The difference, of course, uh, primarily is that Leading a, a group of Marines um, means that their lives uh, will depend on the quality of your leadership in many ways. And um, in schools, um, that's, that's not the case necessarily, uh, although unfortunately in, in recent years we have had a number of situations where leadership has kind of risen as the issue on security and safety issues at school. But generally speaking, I was much more focused on using my leadership specifically to make sure that my Marines were safe, that my Marines, um, that the loss of life was kept to an absolute minimum uh, if we were in a hot zone. But uh, for the most, for as, as far as leadership principles are concerned, you really apply the same principles of leadership. And the interesting part of your question is that in the Marine Corps, leadership is foremost. It's paramount. It's number one. Um, sometimes I'm not so sure that we see that in education when, in fact, we should. 
And if you take a look at the successful schools versus the schools that may not be as successful, it doesn't mean they're unsuccessful, but the schools that may not be as successful, um, you will find that uh, leadership is the difference. That will be usually the difference between the best schools and the good schools and the average schools. And so when you have a good leader, uh, someone who knows how to bring a team together, knows how to work the organization, and make sure that everybody maximizes their potential, uh, you have an organization that is going to succeed and is going to succeed very well. Uh, and that's what we need in this country. And I think, you know, if I can just add the one point that I really wanted to bring up is that, uh, th- that I think is very important for all of us to understand is that right now in this country, education does not get the attention that it needs. If, if you look at the current uh, issues associated with our political um, the, the, the primaries as well as now the political le- the election, we do not hear much about education. And this is, this is really, really sad. Uh, and, I, and I feel that it's a detriment to our country. And education is, in fact, second only to national security as the most important agenda that should be kept, um, that, that, that we should be maintaining uh, in the United States. Uh, many people will say, well, what about the economy? The economy depends on an educated populace. If you don't have highly educated, especially during the technological era that we have, we're living in today, we're no longer in the industrial we're definitely no longer in the agricultural era, so we're in the technological era. If you don't have highly skilled um, individuals, educated individuals, uh, you're not going to have a powerful uh, global economy. And so other than national security, which I understand is always going to be our, our number one issue, education needs to be our second most important issue, and we need to push that. And to do that, we need to find the very best leaders that are going to make that happen for us. In, in Education Disrupted, uh, you talk a lot about failing schools. And, I mean, for every great school, there's also failing schools. And in the charter school world especially, we have, you know, the data shows that we have more A and A-plus schools percentage-wise than traditional public schools. And we also have more DNF schools. Do you think that school performance grade or grading it by that measure helps people to define whether their schools are failing or not failing? The measurement that we do, the measures that we use to, to determine a school today, whether a school is passing or failing, is usually by the, the end of grade results uh, and, and almost exclusively by how well the students did at the end of the year. Uh, it, 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 it's not surprising really, that charter schools have both ends of the spectrum in many ways because charter schools have a tremendous amount of flexibility in, number one, how they do business, number two, how they select their leadership, um, and even how they select their teachers. So the ones that do it extremely well do it very carefully. They take the time to select the right people, and the results are obvious. They're the A and A-plus schools. The ones who don't take the time and unfortunately, they are far more like the public school system in many ways. They basically allow themselves to fall into that, um, that, that, that sort of mentality that a teacher is a teacher is a teacher. A principal is a principal is a principal, uh, when in fact that's not the case. You know, the cream, as, some, as so many people will say, rises to the top. We need to find that. We need to know who those individuals are. And that's why the A-plus charter schools are the ones that make the effort to find those people. And, um, and charter schools have a unique opportunity. That's what I enjoyed and loved about being a charter school principal, is that I did not have anybody looking over my shoulders. 
I did not have to follow instructions on procedures and policies on how to hire and working, worrying about HR and all. I, I could honestly develop my own system as a charter school principal with the support of the board of directors, of course, but most of the time uh, they would allow me to do my, my own my, my work. They, they'd give me the freedom to do so, as most charter school principals do have. Um, and if you do it properly, you can select the right people. And that's what this comes down to. And so the successful charter schools are the ones that um, have the best track record of choosing, selecting, identifying the right people for the job. So what do you think then are some of the, the first warning signs to the board or to the, the school community that your school is going in the wrong direction? The very first, the, the first, when you walk into a school, one of the things I talk about in the book, when you walk into a school, it's not very difficult. I won't say it's, it's always going to be a, a given, but generally speaking, I can walk into a school, I believe, and I think you guys can too, and you can see the attitude of the, of the students, you can see the demeanor of the teachers, and of the uh, uh, school leaders, you can see by the, the way the school looks, the environment, um, whether or not the school is doing well doing or not doing well. Now, you may not be able to determine whether or not it's, uh, it, it's the grade is an 85 or a 95, but you can certainly tell whether it's an 85 or a 50 mm-hmm. uh, by just walking in and watching, number one, how are the students uh, trans, uh, transferring from class to class. You can tell by whether or not when you greet a teacher, whether or not they just look at you and look the other way and couldn't care less about you as a guest, or whether they welcome you. You can tell when you ask to talk to the principal whether the principal is willing to say hello to you, or if the principal just says, I don't have time right now, I'm too busy, when in fact there isn't an emergency or there isn't anything going on that takes up her or his time. So you can tell by the, cult- the culture of a school determines its success. And that those are, there, are, there are warning signs that are so clear. Um, and, and very often people will tell you a culture of any organization is determined, and we're going to go right back to where we started, to leadership. Leadership <laughs> determines the culture of any org- the success of, a, of an organizational uh, culture. And so when you see the overall environment in a school, if you see the proper attitude, if you see that people are, in fact, having a good time working together, and they're welcoming outsiders, and there's, a, there's an excitement in the, uh, in the air, then you can probably assume that that school is doing fairly well. Now, there are going to be exceptions. There will always be exceptions. But generally speaking, 90 95% of the time, it's the ambiance, it's the attitude of the individuals that creates the culture, which in this essence uh, tells you whether or not you have a uh, successful school. And um, very often, uh, from there... Once you identify that and you see that, then you can start going to the next step. You can talk about the individual classroom experiences. How are the teachers talking to their kids? One of the things that I, I, I really emphasize and I think is critical, and I talk about it in the book, and I've talked, I'll talk to anybody about it that will listen to me, is that a teacher is not just a teacher. A teacher is a leader. And we like to talk about classroom management. One of the things I tell my students, I don't want to talk about management. You manage your books, you manage your, your resources, you manage your, um, your, your processes and procedures in the class. You, you manage the grading system, you manage your internet, you manage things that, you don't, that are not alive. Anything that's alive, you lead. You're either a leader or you're not a leader. Now, yes, you know, when it comes to a management, basic management, you're talking about, well, we want to manage how many students we're going to put in this class or that class or how we're going to distribute the students 
within the school and, and who's going to go in what, what, what class and are we going to get put. That, those are, again, those are not dealing directly with human beings. The teachers in the classroom, and that's another way to tell whether or not a school is successful, how are the teachers teaching the students? How are they dealing with them? And if you see a teacher that is treating his or her students with dignity, respect, uh, a positive attitude, you can readily assume that that teacher is probably, again, there are going to be exceptions, that teacher is probably successful at also conveying the information and educating that student. Um, otherwise, you have a teacher who you know, either doesn't care or doesn't really care or doesn't, uh, it just doesn't have the wherewithal. And as we all know, and the research is clear, the teachers are the critical piece to any school. Yeah, it's not the, the, the person at the top will set the tone and establish, help establish the culture, but where the rubber meets the road is where the teacher teaches the child. And if you get the right people, and that's one of the things I look for almost always, is do we have good leaders? And so I, I, I didn't always make it. I, I was not always successful. Uh, but if I could find a teacher who honestly understood the fundamentals of leadership, I felt I was much more successful at making sure that that class will have a higher level of a higher percentage of students uh, at grade level at the end of the year, or maybe even a little bit above that, mm-hmm. and move on. Well, you've convinced me to change my vocabulary now from classroom management to classroom <laughs> leadership. I love that. Uh, and you know, Dr. Stein, we consider leadership to be paramount, uh, just like you two. And, and our favorite leadership author, John Maxwell, says everything rises and falls with leadership. So what role do you see the school's executive as having in the process of a school failing and or recovering from failure? I, I think the, the, the school's leader uh, at the administrative level, as, as a school principal or executive director, whatever you want to call them, and the assistant as well, uh, along with all the other individuals who have responsibility for leading the, the, their teams, whether it's a um, grade-level team leader, uh, whether it's a... Um, you know, a, a school council who's been given uh, responsibility if um, the assistant or the, the school uh, leader is gone to, to assume responsibility for the school. I, I think those, those individuals have a very unique responsibility in, in a number of ways. Number one, they need to know what everybody's doing. They need to know what everybody's responsibilities are. They need to know what a teacher is expected to do and, and how best to do it. So they have some things to, to be responsible. They're responsible for some things that are not tangible. Um, and so, in, in other words, you, you have to learn. Yeah, you can't just walk in and say, tell a teacher that she or he did something wrong without understanding and explaining to them exactly why. Because your credibility is at stake. Um, and so, so that's one thing. Understand what your people are doing. Very often we have principals who um, will just spout off information or just spout off criticism uh, and then walk away. Um, the teachers don't deserve much better than that. They deserve someone who knows what they're doing and are willing to explain to them. One of the, one of the things that we have found, and, and there have been many studies to show, that very often uh, and a very low percentage of teachers have respect for their administrators. And the reason they have very little respect for the administrators is because they say that the administrator either doesn't care, seem to care, doesn't come to watch or observe, or when they do, they provide very perfunctory guidance, and very basic guidance, and they never follow up to, to, to help the teacher. And the teachers are asking for very simple things. They're asking for, number one, good guidance, and they're asking for specifics. 
And so that, that's one of the roles of the school principal. But the biggest role that the school principal and the school leader has is to set the tone for the school. And for that, you need to do a number of things. You can't do it by yourself. And so a, a principal that asks the teachers for their input, a principal that asks for, uh, that establishes a team environment, a t- principal that has good communication skills, one of the things I used to love to do is every Monday morning I would send out an email. All, all I said was, good morning, hope you had a great weekend, and by the way, just a reminder, this is what we're doing this week. We're going to have an open house on Tuesday night, or we're going to have a, an assembly on Wednesday morning, or whatever we're going to do. And the teachers knew that, but it was my way of saying hello, my way of maybe, and I always like to provide a little something that, hey, what did I do? They want to know that you're a human being as well. You know, hey, by the way, this past weekend, my wife and I did this and that. My, uh, I visited my grandchildren, I visited my children, whatever. And so they know you're a human being and you're willing to relate your own personal um, life to, to them. You're not just standing above them and have your, you know, you're, you're not separate in a way. Um, and so um, th- once you do that, once you create a personal relationship, with the teachers, and again, the, the, be careful when you do that. In that, you're still the boss. I mean, there are going to be times when you have to call somebody in and, and either reprimand them, and, and even hopefully not too often, but let them go. And you've got to be able to do that without letting the personal part get in the way. But you've got to establish a personal rapport with the people you work with to the point where they see you as a human being, not just as a a boss and just as a supervisor. And after that, you set the tone. You set the tone for the school in everything that you do. So one of the things, for instance, that I like to do as a school principal, I like to go to every classroom at least once a day. Now, that is a lot of work because chances are that if I do that, I'm not going to get a lot of my administrative work done until late in the evening or if I get in early in the morning or on the weekends. Um, And I think that's a, a failure that we have in many of our principals today who feel that, hey, look, this is my job. This is not a profession. And therefore, uh, I'll get my work done. And then after that, it's my time. Uh, I'll be honest with you. This is is one of the transitions I have to make uh, that I I did not have to make, excuse me, uh, from being a Marine to being a school principal. I worked as a Marine. I was 24 hours a day, seven days a week, you know, 365 days a year. Um, And one of the things that my wife very astutely pointed out to me within a year, she said, you haven't left the Marine Corps in terms of the commitment. I, I said, I haven't because I don't know how. I, you know, and I was at dinner one night uh, with friends visiting our house. We had dinner, and our friends, a retired Marine also, a good friend of mine from the Marine Corps, and his wife happens to be a fourth-grade teacher. And I got a phone call. It was 8 o'clock at night. I still remember that. We were sitting around the dinner table and uh, finishing up and just kind of talking, and the phone rang. And I said, excuse me, I answered the phone, and I started talking. And I was on the phone for about 40 minutes. And I came back, and um, the teacher, the, the, the lady who was the uh, friend, uh, the lady said, uh, that was one of your teachers, wasn't it? Because she could, he could hear what I was talking about in, in part. And I said, yes, it was. And she said, your teachers call you at home? She works for the public school system, by the way. I, I worked at that point for, uh, I was at uh, preeminent, as a matter of fact, charter school. And I said, oh, absolutely. I tell them, if you have any question, even if you have a non-school-related issue, and you just had to have no one else to talk to, call me. And uh, she said, I can't believe that. You know, I've never had a principal who'd offered that. And I said, you know, it's not so much that, and, and my friend, the, the former Marine, he's also a retired colonel, said, that's the Marine Corps. That's not 
your principals have never had, she, he said to his wife, your, your, your principals have never had the experience that we've had, which is that we devote our time to our people. And, um, and that's exactly right. I tell my, my teachers, call me whenever you want. So, uh, again, if you give them that time, the teachers, the, at, at some point they will understand that he really does care. She really does care about me. Uh, this is more than just a job. Uh, and, again, you're not doing it for yourself. You're doing it because that's what the organization needs. And if you're going to improve the quality of instruction in your school, it's, it's an attitude. It's a culture. And that's part of the culture. And I, I, I'll use that word forever because, to me, the culture is set by the, uh, the school principal. So, again, if you see a school that is operating effectively, it's going to be because it's got a good culture. The good culture, it's because it's got good leadership. So it's, it's, to me, it's a very simple transition but uh, uh, explanation, but that's what it comes down to. And well, and the linchpin in, in that cycle is that it's hard to find and retain quality school leaders. Why do you think that's a phenomenon around North Carolina or around the country? Years ago, quick story, years ago, I met with the principal of National Heritage Academies, and um, we had lunch. And we were sitting there, and he said, okay, Les, here's what I want to do. I want to see if you can provide me with some assistance. Now, he had a great staff, and they could, they could do most of the work, but he just wanted to get my insight. I want to create, he said, a school system. And at that point, when he met me, we, uh, National Heritage had about, uh, my school was the 27th, I think, uh, of, of the schools, uh, 26th or 27th. And um, at that point, we had maybe about 45. And he said, I want to create an organization that is just like the Marine Corps. And he said, what do I need to do it? I said, you need an act of God. <laughs> I did. I said, you need an act of God. He said, I'm sorry. And he was a great guy, young guy, MBA from Harvard. Uh, this guy was in his early 40s in a tremendous position. Um, and so he was an up-and-comer, obviously. He was selected very specifically and great leadership. And he said, uh, and I said, no, you can't do it. Uh, I said, I, really, unless God really intervenes, uh, you know, and I hope he does for you, but I, I don't think he will, uh, I, you're not going to do it. And he said, why not? He said, because the Marine Corps begins early on. It, re, it reinvents human beings. It tells them that they're not what they were before. It, re, it creates them in an image that they want them to be into the future. And even then, they don't retain a very high percentage. For one, they get rid of a lot of them because they just don't measure up. And then others just say, I can't keep doing this. This isn't my lifestyle. This isn't what I want to do. So after four years, six years, eight years, depending, they move on. Now, so what do we have here? Taking the question you just asked me, Jeff, and applying it to this, this, this issue, if we could pick and choose the people that we wanted, we could do a much better job of creating that kind of an environment where failure would probably never happen in a school system because we wouldn't allow it. But we don't have that. We, we have people coming to our schools who are 30 years old, 35 years old. You can't pick all the 18-year-olds and say that you're going to create them from scratch and you're going to show them why this is the way to do it. And if they don't seem to measure up, you just say, okay, go ahead and find another place to work or another uh, profession because this isn't yours. We don't have that. The people who, that we have to work with are the ones that are established. They've already got their mindsets. They, they already have a way of doing business. They already, and unfortunately, very often, they've, they many, very often see 
uh, teaching as a, as a job rather than a profession. So the great leaders in education try to convince them and try to change that mindset for the ones that need to change to making sure they understand that this isn't a job. When you go home at 5 o'clock in the afternoon, you, you still need to think about school. What did I do right? What did I do wrong during the day? How do I adjust my thinking tomorrow to do a little bit better? Uh, and that's very hard to get people to do that. So how do you avoid a failing school is first you try your best to find the right people. After that, you work with the ones that you have and you try to convince them that this is what needs to happen. And you need to very quickly determine who are the ones that are not on board. Because if they stay, they will contaminate the rest of the group. And, and I've had that happen to me as well. And, and it's not a very pleasant sight. When they start to contaminate the rest and you start getting into the, this is the part that I just simply, I can't live with, the rumors, the gossip, who's doing what to whom. Um, that's when your organization, that's when the culture falls apart. So, you know, finding a school system or a school that um, will, that turns around from a failing to a successful school comes from, again, finding the right people and, and working to the extent that you can to manipulate and manage their mindset so that they understand that in order to succeed, this is what we need to do. And then again, it comes down to people. And it's not a very easy thing to do. It really isn't. Well, we've been studying a book uh, over the last few weeks by Patrick Lencioni, who is the author of The Five Dysfunctions of a Team. I'm not sure if you know that book. Good. Great yeah. book. Uh, but this new book is called The Ideal Team Player. And he says that the virtues that he feels that a, uh, the ideal team player has is that they are humble, hungry, and smart. Uh, and we love that. Um, what, what are some of the qualities or virtues that you look for in trying to fill your school with teachers who are going to help you turn around the culture or have that culture that you're seeking? It, it, you know, it's interesting that, uh, number one, when I teach leadership, one of the first things I'll tell my students is that all the evidence suggests that there aren't very many, if any, stupid leaders. There really aren't. Intelligence is a critical piece of leadership. Most of the great leaders, and I, I mean, I can find a couple that were not, but very, really not many. Uh, if, uh, the percentages are insignificant. Um, you do have to be smart. Um, and so it, it, that is, a, again, a critical factor of selection. You know, who are you selecting? Um, and, and I've interviewed so many people. Uh, for jobs as teachers or as assistant uh, principals or as administrators. And um, one of the reasons I turned them down is because I just didn't think they were smart enough, really smart enough, intelligent enough to handle the job. Um, and, and so that, that's a critical, that, that's, a, that's a great, great thought. And it makes it, it, it's something that we need to take very seriously. Um, some people just don't belong. Now, there are some that are not all that smart, but they're willing to work very hard. <laughs> I like those individuals because in many ways they can compensate for that. Um, and so they're willing to go above and beyond, just keep pushing and pushing and pushing because they know that they have a deficiency. But when you have someone who's got an, a, a, a desire to succeed, um, I, you can't beat that. You know? And I, I, I will say that I had Marines, for instance, um, at um, both the officer and the non-commissioned officer levels who I knew were not going to be future commandants of the Marine Corps, future sergeants, majors of the Marine Corps, but they were going to be very good gunnery sergeants. Uh, so you have to know, again, this is leadership. You have to know where do the people belong. 
you know, who are the people in your organization? You know, and, and, and I like to create, and I, I've, I've passed this on to a few other people, including my daughter, who's in the leadership position, and I tell, create an inventory. I list the people in your organization that, that, and, and identify their strengths and their weaknesses and where, what areas you think you can, you can work with them on. And, I, and one of them is, you know, again, if they're not extremely, they're not, they don't understand all the mechanics of how things work in the organization, but they're willing to learn, you know, that, that's a tremendous advantage. Um, and then humility and, and, and being humble, uh, I think, is a critical. And you and I talked about that a few minutes ago before we started the, uh, the discussion here. Um, any leader that thinks very highly of themselves is suspect in my mind. Uh, the first thing, if you want attention and if you think that you are God's gift to your organization, um, you know, it doesn't say you won't succeed. I won't say that you won't, you'll fail, but I will tell you that um, you probably won't be as good as the person who says, my well-being and my success is second. Um, I, it, I don't need the recognition. What I need to know is at the end of the day that my organization succeeded. So a lot of this comes down to intrinsic motivation. And I teach that in my classes on leadership. Extrinsic versus intrinsic motivation. Are you motivated by what you want to see accomplished for the organization? Or are you motivated by what this is going to do for you? And um, unfortunately, we see far too many examples of people who are in it for themselves. And the accolades, they want to be up there and everybody cheering and clapping for them. And uh, when I see that, then I realize that you know, it doesn't mean they won't succeed. doesn't mean that people are going to fail because of that. But the difference between that and what it could be if they were really looking out for the organization less for themselves is uh, significant, mm-hmm. very significant. And so you've got your leaders and you've got your teachers, teacher leaders. <laughs> um, yeah. And so you're, you know, all of this trickles down to making a difference for the kids who go to your school Absolutely. and the families that decide to bring them there for a charter school. So what kind of role do you feel like the, the kids actually play in this process of turning around the school? It, it, we come back again to culture. If you create the right culture in a, in a school, if you create the right environment within the school system, you're going to notice an appreciable difference in the way the students respond. When the students can say, for instance, um, start to welcome you into their classroom as the school principal or as the assistant principal, or when they see a guest walking into their classroom and they welcome, you know, now we have little little things that we like to do. Uh, okay, the teacher will tell the students, when a guest walks into a room, uh, you, uh, Julia, or the school ambassador, uh, classroom ambassador, welcome them. And those are good things to do. They are wonderful things to do. I, I, I agree with that. But you want buy-in from the classroom as a whole. You don't just want one student or two students to do that. You want everybody to say, um, hello, who are you? Uh, you know, why are you here today? Uh, you want them to be involved. You can, at, at that point, you see a culture within that classroom, and hopefully it pervades to the, the school as a whole, where the kids are enjoying their time at school. You know, we hear about the, 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 the kids who just have to be dragged to the school. They don't want to go. There's a reason for that. And the reason for that is because, you know, either there is a problem, whether it's bullying or something else, but more importantly, and the chances are greater, that it's not anything specific. It's because they just don't care. They don't like it there. Nobody has made this exciting and interesting for them. And I'm not saying that the teachers need to be, um, they, they don't need to be entertainers necessarily, 
But you need to find a way of, ex of showing the students that the reason they're there. What will this do for them? And, uh, and very often we don't do enough of that. So when you create a culture in a school that, that has a good balance between the things that are fun to do and the things that are required, and the students pick up on that, um, it, what you ultimately do is create an environment where the students are saying, I, I want to be here. I can't wait to go to school. And there are many kids, many, there are a tremendous number of students that are like that because they go to a school that respects them. And they know when a teacher cares about them. They know when a teacher is just going through the motions. Uh, but if they understand that this teacher honestly wants to make me succeed, to see me. So one of the things I tell my, my teachers, for instance, uh, when I teach uh, at, the, at the graduate level is create a school vision, a classroom vision for yourself. We know the schools have a vision. Why not a classroom vision? At the very beginning of the year, sit down with your students and create a vision for your classroom. Where do we want to be at the end of this school year? Number one, everyone will go to the next grade level. All of us are going to pass. Now, can we do that alone if we all just go home and study on our, by ourselves? No. We have to help so-and-so, and we have to make sure that so-and-so is on board. And if you see, I had a great example last night. Uh, my my, my uh, family came over to, um, to the house for dinner, and my grandson said to, um, we were talking to my uh, grandson about, um, uh, about the school. And he, uh, he has a very good friend. And he said, um, we said, well, how's so-and-so doing? And he said, uh, oh, he's doing well, but, you know, he, he just doesn't care much about uh, school. And um, he, he's, he's just not interested. And before we start the school year, he said, I, I'm working with him. Now, this is a fifth grade, uh, sixth grader, going to be a, a rising sixth grader. I'm working with him to convince him that this is important. I'm saying, hey, the sixth grader, 11 years old, going to be 12 in December. He's convincing a friend that school is important. And I'm thinking to myself, yes, that's what we need. We need a classroom where the kids convince each other because the teacher has convinced them that school is important and there's, there's something in it for all of them together as a, as a team. And so when one of the things I love to see, I had a um, student in um, preeminent, as a matter of fact, when... Um, uh, that, that was, uh, had a very severe disability. And uh, when I got there, I remember, and, and again, this is nobody's fault, but they were taunting her. This was um, within a couple of days of arriving at the school. And they were taunting her, and, and she, unfortunately, she really didn't even know she was being taunted. She had both a physical and a, uh, uh, a mental disability. And, um, but we were working with her. She, she, she was well taken care of with a special education program, uh, and she was included in the classrooms. And I just said to my teachers, uh, my middle school teachers, she was a sixth grader at the time, and I said, can you find a way to make sure that not only is she included, but that they understand what this is about? And sure enough, my teachers rose to the occasion. And these are teachers, again, and I, I will take credit for this. I, I selected them, and I had some teachers that were unbelievable. I, I, was, I was very fortunate to be able to pick some great teachers. And um, they said, yeah, you know, you're right. And, and, and we've noticed that, too, and we've actually talked amongst ourselves. And I said, find, let's find a way to let the class understand that she is part of their organization. And that means that the rest of them as well, any bullying, any... At the end, when she graduated from uh, the eighth grade and we had our graduation ceremony, um, she was the star. She was the star of the show. That class, which was the same class minus one or two students that had risen from the sixth to the eighth grade, um, celebrated her. And, and, and throughout those three years, you could see the changes happening. 
And she was wanting to come. To, she hardly missed any days of school after about the first few weeks of the sixth grade. Um, again, for everybody, that's, that's the attitude. That's the environment you want to create. And so for the students, if you can create that culture um, and if you can convince them what this is all about and that this is for them, you're in a great position to then have them help you as a school rise to that level of success that you're looking for. And, and I think that's what this is all about. I was just actually thinking, as you were talking about relationships with your staff, right? And Dr. Stein told me, he said, he said, Tom, you got to walk down the hallways and you got to look your teachers in the eye and don't start with anything that they have do. Ask them, how was your date on Friday night with your wife or your spouse? Or Absolutely. how is your you know, daughter doing? And I had understood relationships, but never to that point of, of you know getting off of your own agenda. I mean, that's what John Maxwell teaches all the time. Off your own agenda and onto your people's agenda, because if you help them get what they want, you'll find that they'll help you get it. So I'm just going through that conversation. It's almost, I can still remember sitting at my desk, tape recorder. I had never met you before. Just the fact that you gave me time was humbling enough, uh, but it was just so fun to hear that. And now to hear it, you know, five years later, um, just awesome stuff. So you've really, really helped me a lot when I was a brand new principal, not having any idea what I was doing, uh, to hear that I thought. Was and, and you know, Tom, let me tell you, that, that's again came from the Marine Corps. Mm-hmm. As a second lieutenant in the early 70s at the basic school with 200 some, 230 some other second lieutenants. Mm-hmm. One of the first things they taught us, and I, I use this in all my leadership discussions with, with everybody, they taught us, keep a commander's notebook in your pocket, cargo pocket. You know, we have the, the uniforms with all the cargo pockets, the tremendous number of pockets we have. And you keep a commander's notebook. And so in the commander's notebook, so what's the, well, first of all, what's the point of the commander's notebook? And they would tell us, when you take over your first platoon, and this is exact. And I will say this: yeah, I was young, I was very impressionable, but I was hungry to learn. And when they taught us the, when the Marine Corps talked about these things, they were so convincing because they had a, a bunch of people up there. Not only were they proven veterans with ribbons on their chests, and they've done gone through. Most of them were Vietnam veterans. Um, but you had to have respect for them. Just the way they talked, the way they explained everything, you just had to listen. And I thought, these guys must know what they're talking about. Uh, and so, as I, they said, keep a commander's notebook and have information in there about your, mm-hmm. com- your company or your platoon. And, of course, as a second lieutenant, first lieutenant, the first thing you get is a platoon of about 20 to 30 uh, men and women. And back then it was mostly men. But, and I did that. And when I... Got to my unit. Now, you don't sit there and write while people are talking, but you remember what they said. And when they leave, I, had, I remember I had a sergeant came to me and said, Sir, and, and this is not long after I arrived, and I had my first platoon. And he said, um, I, I just want to let you know, my, my wife is ill. She's got an illness. Um, and I have an autistic son. And so there are going to be times when I need time off uh, to go and, number one, t- help her with her illness and to take my son for special uh, treatment and whatever else I would. And I said, all right, thank you very much for letting me know. Well, as soon as he left, I wrote this in my notebook. Mm-hmm. Because I, I, I was going to have 30, 30 million. I probably remember most of this, but I just want to make sure. The Marine Corps said, if your commanding officer ever comes to you and says, hey, I saw your sergeant, I saw your corporal, 
a couple of days ago, I was out in town, and he had this and that going on. Well, is there a problem? If you're stuck because you don't know what's going on in that Marine's life, mm-hmm. you are not a leader. Mm-hmm. I've taken that to heart ever since. Now, when I had a command of 2,000 as a colonel, 2,500, I made it a point to know as much as I could about every one of them. And it was interesting, as a, 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 at one of my charter schools, matter of fact, preeminent, the president of the company, the gentleman I was talking about earlier, came one day, and we were standing out front. And the kids were coming in. It was early in the morning. He came to visit. And I said, well, I, let's go out front, because I like to welcome all the students as they come when they're getting dropped off uh, by their parents. And uh, I started saying good morning to every student by name. And he said, you know all the students' names? And, and uh, this is not new. I mean, we know that that's something we want all principals to do school principals to do, but I said, yes, I do. And he found that to be interesting. We had about 500, 600 students. Um, That goes back to, Tom, what you just said. Not just the students, and as many of them as well, by the way. If a parent tells me that I'm taking my son to a doctor's appointment, I I try to remember that. I try to write it down and say, okay, let me ask that parent two days from now, how did that go? What happened? But with the teachers especially, the individuals who work right there with me, uh, I wanted to know. And yes, when a teacher went out on the date or she was dating somebody, I didn't get personal. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to know, hey, are you going to get married? Are you? No, no, no. That's not, uh, we didn't go that far. Yeah. But I want to know, hey, th- you guys went to, what movie did you see? Yeah. Is it worth seeing? You know, do, do you recommend it for my wife and me? And, or if the father was ill and she was going home to visit him, how's your dad doing? Mm-hmm. You know, but interestingly enough, Tom, when you say that, when it's reversed, and, for instance, when my father passed away and I was gone for about four or five days, I, had to, I went up to New Jersey and we buried him, the response from my teachers was overwhelming. Mm-hmm. They showed the same level of concern and, 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 and respect for me in, with my loss yeah. that I had shown for them. It comes back. And it's a question of, again, how you deal with it. So, yeah, thanks right. for bringing that up. No, absolutely. So I would love to know, how would you recommend school leaders use your book or any of your literature that, that you know, you have for them. What's your goal? What was your vision when, when you wrote it with your family, by the way, which had yeah, to be yeah. very, very awesome. Yeah, so. it was. Um, it's a great question. Um, <clears throat> let, let, let's, let, let me begin by saying that in the Marine Corps, the first, one of the things you do is you build up your Marines very quickly. At boot camp, the first thing you do at boot camp, number one, at Paris Island or at San Diego for the young enlisted Marines is you break them down. Mm-hmm. You make them feel worthless. And you, you tell them, whatever you thought of yourself, you were a great high school athlete, you, you had all the dates you ever wanted from all the girls because you're a good-looking guy, you're not as good-looking as you thought, you're not as good athletically as you thought, you're not as smart as you thought, and you break them down. They break them down for about three to four or five weeks. That's when they give them a choice. Do you want to get out? At the four-week mark, it's called, you know, do you, do you want to choose to leave? And at that point... We're not going to stop you. You can leave. A very, quite a few of them choose to leave. All right? they, they decide that this isn't for them. At that point, though, they've been broken down. The ones who want to stay are the ones that they're interested in, the Marine Corps is interested in. And now you keep those, and now you build them up. When we finish building them at the 11-week mark, and then we send them to their first training as whatever their specialty is going to be. And the first one, actually, they go to is all infantry training for about four weeks. The ones who are going to stay in infantry stay on for another five, six weeks. The ones who go to 
mechanics, IT, whatever they're going to become, they go to another school. You keep building them up at that point. So what we've done is we've broken them down, and we've now said to them, now, we're all on the same sheet of music. Do we all understand each other? You know better than the guy standing next to you or the girl standing, the lady standing next to you. And you're still not a Marine, by the way. You will never be called a Marine until the day we put the global, Eagle Globe and anchors on you, on your chest, and tell you that you're a Marine. Until then, we're just building you up. Now, they don't know all of this, but that's exactly how it goes. Mm-hmm. On the day that they graduate, you're telling them you're now good enough to be called a Marine. And then from then on, we keep building and we're teaching leadership and all, everything we've just talked about. Now, we don't have that option with teachers. Again, you get a 30-year-old who's already set in her ways or his ways, and you don't have that. But as a school leader, you can do some things about that. Many of them come to the school not having very high thoughts about them, good thoughts about themselves. They don't have very good personal and good impressions about who they are as human beings. Could be because their wife or their husband hasn't said very many complimentary things about them. It could be because their families where they grew up uh, did not ever treat them very well. It could be for any number of reasons or because they just don't have, they just personally don't have very high thoughts about themselves. And so one of the things I like to try to do, and I think the great principals do actually, uh, and do it better than I ever will, is they basically try to find the best things in their teachers and show them this is why you are a teacher. This is why you selected to be a teacher. And they build on that. And so when you're working with your teachers and you're trying to change the mindset, and especially if it's a failing school, you know, when I, when I took over uh, my second school, uh, I'll be honest with you, I, I, I came in and I talked to all the teachers. And one of the things that shocked me more than anything else was I, I said, we're going to need to make some changes here, but I need your help. First question I had was, especially from veteran teachers with 25 and 30 years of experience, was why? Why Everybody keeps saying we're failing. What's, why, why are we failing? When they don't know why they're failing. And at that point, this was Marine Joy Charter School, 23.7% of the students had passed the most recent end of grade test. Now, I don't say end of grade test are the ultimate reason for success. But, hey, 23.7% not making it when the school's next door has at least 50 or 60%, it's an indicator of something is wrong. So I realized immediately that these teachers didn't understand what what was wrong. And many of them just had an opinion of themselves that was far greater than they should have. And and they thought they were just God's gift to teaching when in fact they weren't. And uh, so then I started to think about who can I hire and what kind of people do I need to, to look for? And I, I, the, the few teachers that I thought were very, very good, I asked them to help me. Let's go ahead and do the interviews. What are we looking for in our teachers? What kind of a culture are we looking for? So it, to, to get to your point, Tom, what, what, what you're doing is, the first thing you're doing is you're building the organization from the ground up, especially in a failing school, to make sure that the teachers have an understanding of where the school is and where they are as part of that school. And once you create that environment where they have respect for themselves and for the school and for the students who are in that school, once you create that environment, you, you now build on it. And so that's when, it come, that's when the points come in about talking to them, making sure they understand that they are, they're, they're valued um, as human beings as much as they are as teachers. And then is when you, that's when you provide them with staff development, training, 
uh, when I say to the teachers, hey, look, I'm willing to spend the money um, on training. Does anybody want to go? We've got a training. And I remember I had one in Texas. And my third grade and my fifth grade teachers, two of them who were friends, said, we'd love to go to Texas. So can we go? Sure. Let's go ahead and make it happen. So I, th- then, then you reallocate the budget and create priorities. And sometimes you don't have a whole lot of money. But if you establish those priorities where teachers say, obviously, this is, he's, this is important. He, he wants to help me succeed, then, uh, then you're in a far better position to, to, to move the school in the right direction. So, um, it's, again, you're building that environment, and you're building it with an understanding that the people are the critical piece to this puzzle. So how would you, you talked about success. So this is a question that we throw around a lot. How do you uh, define success in schools, I, you know, and that, and we talk a little bit about that. I think in, in the book as well. Yes, obviously, success as measured by the outside world, uh, which is usually going to be other students at grade level, mm-hmm. is is a big part of it. But success also is measured by wh- how how far number one have you come. So, if a school is, if you feel that there's high attrition rate at your school, twenty five thirty percent of your teachers are leaving every year. Um, 15, 20% of the students are being pulled out every year. You start measuring success by how those numbers are dropping. Because if obviously if fewer teachers want to leave and fewer students and their parents want, want their students to leave, then they like your school or they think that there's something in your school. That's not a complete measure of success, but it's, at least it's telling you you're in the right direction. And very often, you know, what you have to do is you have to create your own definition of success within an organization. Because if you're going to go on the definition of society, then you're going to be chasing some kind of a rainbow uh, along the way. And, and you don't want to do that. You don't want to chase somebody else's definition. So you create your own. That's where strategic planning comes in. One of the things that happened at my school, uh, the, 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 the second school at, at Marine Joy, and again, that's not, I'm not blaming anybody because it's, it, it, I don't think many of them had leadership experience I don't, or, or had been taught leadership. Uh, I came in and I said, can somebody show me where the, um, I, I need to look at the strategic plan. Where, where is the school going? Uh, nobody could find it. I finally found it on, I had a bookshelf behind me on, on the desk, behind my desk, and I finally found it under a stack. Um, it had been written like two or three years ago, and nobody knew it existed. Nobody knew what was in it. You know. And I said, all right, let me read this. <laughs> I want to make sure I know what it says. And there were some good points in it. That's the interesting thing. There were some great points. If we just followed them, I think it would have really helped the school. Yeah. But, again, we wrote it as a perfunctory requirement. Uh, we now have one, thank you, and we moved on. So you, me- you make that a living document. The living piece of that document especially is what's the vision, what's the mission. I don't create a vision by myself. I create a vision with the, with the team. I, you know, I remember sitting there and, and I, writing on the board what people would tell me. What's our vision? What do we want to see in five years from five years from now? Where do we want to be? Uh, all eighty percent to ninety percent of our students will be at grade level. Okay, I write that down. I write everything down. They tell me, and uh, at the end, uh, what's our mission? What's our purpose now? Tell me why we're here. Uh, and of course, you get some good words and you start. All I did was I took that and I created from that uh, something that was that you can understand and that reads well. In other words, you know, I did the, the, the grammar. Mm-hmm. I, I, I made the words come together. And then I would put it up on the board and I'd say, are we all in agreement? And sure enough, I had a couple of teachers said, I don't like that word. I don't like this sentence. I don't, let's change it again. But you spend time. 
And that's time not only spent on working on a vision and a mission, it's time working together. That's teamwork. Now all of a sudden, and you always have the wallflowers. And you, hey, Judy, come on, get involved. I want to know, can we do this? Is this really our purpose? And, you know, they look at you like, oh, son of a gun. You know, yeah. you know I said, and I would tell them, this is something I would tell them. If that's the way you feel, and sometimes I'd embarrass them. You look, you, you look like I'm, I'm putting you on the spot and I'm, imagine how your student's going to feel when you do that to them. You know, come on, try to, let's get involved. And, uh, you know, sometimes you just kind of, and, and it becomes fun and then they needle each other a little bit and, mm-hmm. and you move on. You do that. Then you create your goals for each for each uh, for for the vision, what are your major strategic goals? Academics, social, and and you work it down. Again, it's an exercise that's good for the school and it's great for team building. And um, and after that, you do something for fun. At that point, they look at that vision, they look at that mission, they look at their goals. If we achieve those eighty percent, ninety percent, that's success. Mm-hmm. But it's ours. Yeah. We created them. Now, this isn't the state. Now, the state will tell us that if you're below 50%, you're, a, you're, you're an at-need school, whatever you want to call us. Right. But the rest of if we can get there, uh, the vision, the mission, and the goals, we just determine our own definition of success. And that's where you want to be as a school. Yeah, with the, you know, we have the list of schools, you know, it's right there on the wall behind you that, you know, we work with. And, and I'd say more than half of them, they don't have goals. And it's always the first thing that we ask the board when we do board training. What are your goals? You know, what is, you know, why do you exist? What will the parents see five years from today? That's the first exercise we put yeah. them through. And that's, uh, it's, you know, um, you can only manage what, what you're measuring. Can you, okay, so you've already taken us through the whole process of I learn something, I unlearn, right, at Paris Island, and then I relearn, right? What, you know, what, so... Take, take us through, you've learned a lot, you wrote this book with your family five years ago, six years ago. Three what, years. Yeah. what have you relearned or what have you learned new since then that's maybe you know, different or maybe changed some of your mindset about um, education leadership? Well, you know, you know Tom, one of, one of the things that I, I, um, I have come to realize is that um, we still aren't getting it right. Um, you know, and not because the book is out there, you know, and it's had some success, but it's not. There's so many books about leadership, um, but we're not paying attention. That's what I learned. We're not paying attention to what is out there, um, and we, we have plenty of examples on what we should be doing and how we could create great schools, uh, but we're not really paying attention. And um, one of the things that I've I've come to realize over the years is that. Um, if you don't keep pushing, if you don't, if you don't just keep pressing and, and hammering away at institutions, at the way they select their leaders, um, it, it, when you go to your schools and they can't tell you what their goals and objectives are, then either they never read the books, which is a problem. They, they haven't read anything on education, which is something I've, I've found, by the way. Boards of education, uh, they're made up of people who they want to do something good for society or they really kind of want to look good by having a resume builder that says, I've been on a board. Um, and that's, that's the wrong reason to be on a board. Um, but the bottom line is, if, if they haven't learned, then why aren't they learning now? And so at that point, I would say, 
here's a book, everybody, you guys, read this. This is Maxwell's, you know, 21 points of for good leadership, um, proven points. Let's talk about it. Um, very often you don't get that level of interest, yeah. you know. And again, that's the difference between teachers or board members, in this, let's say teachers who are in it because it's a job and it's a paycheck, or they're in it because it's a profession. And so what I've learned over the years, if, if, if you really want to know, is not that we don't know how to do it and that there's not enough information out there to tell us how to do it. It's that we just aren't taking the time to, to do it. And, um, and it's sad. To me, it's very sad because, again, as I go back to my original point, uh, education to me is the second most important issue in our nation. Security is the only, only thing that I can think of that's more important. Uh, you want to stay a global power? Um, at both from a national defense as well as an economic standpoint, you better have an educated populace. And uh, right now, um, we're, we're doing okay, but we're not doing anywhere near as good as we could. And um, a good example, you know, the state of North Carolina as well is, is a very good example. Um, why is it that we always pay lip service to education? Why is it, is it always an education, a, uh, an election year issue? Um, why is it that we can't get into a rhythm, you know? And, and I think Jim Hunt tried to do that, you know, many years ago, 16-some years ago, um, and get us into a rhythm about education uh, so that it becomes a natural part of our thinking. Mm -hmm. Education is a natural part of our day-to-day -day concern about our future. You do that. Now, Massachusetts does that, by the way. It's a good example. Massachusetts takes education very seriously, and uh, th that's why they're number one mm -hmm. in the country, yeah. <laughs> you know, and that's why they're like six, seven, eight yeah. globally, because education is literally one of their priorities. Right. It's, well, it's not it that difficult. Back, and it goes back to your point about, um, and this is all I can think about when you're talking about your planning of Mideast and your planning of uh, the, you know, uh, you know, like the parallel, that's, that's, you know, being responsive rather than reactive. Right. And Massachusetts has, we're going to be responsive to what we know right. is most important when most states or most school districts, most schools in general, look at the EOGs and go, oh, I guess we have to make some changes, exactly. right? That's reactive. Exactly. Um, so it's all, you know, based upon summative information now. So there was obviously between preeminent and Maureen Joy, you had, right, you, you left preeminent. Well, I feel like I've done what I can do here. And then you went to Mar and Joy, and you said, "I'm not going to leave Joy exactly. the way I left Preeminent. I'm going to I'm going to find someone who can sustain this and keep going." Exactly. So, so how do leaders? <clears throat> how did you come to that awareness? And 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 how do leaders make sure right now in schools or whatever organizations? Because, I mean, what what should they be doing to build sustained plans over time so the organization can lead way way past their existence on earth? And I, again, I learned a lot of that in the Marine Corps. Uh, and I remember a friend of mine calling me one day, and, and, and our friendship kind of struggled on this one because I, I, I did something that I, as a friend, I should have been more careful on how I did this, but he called me. We were both captains, and he called me. He just had a very big maintenance organization that he was in charge of um, in, a, in, a, um, in a battalion. And he, as a captain, he took over this maintenance organization that had, you know, over 100 people. I mean, for a captain, that was a, a good-sized command. 100 or 200 people, and I don't know, th thousands of pieces of equipment, trucks, engineering equipment, everything. And he came, uh, and he did a phenomenal job. He took the organization and built it up, and um, 
did a great job. Uh, and it, it was recognized as, as one of the best maintenance organizations in the Marine Corps and everything else. And um, after he left, though, uh, within six months, it, it, it started to go downhill again. And he called me, and he, you know, he was actually bragging about, you know, I can't believe it, and uh, you know, we had such a great organization, and uh, here they are now, they're, uh, they're struggling. And I said, man, you really failed, didn't you? And I heard a silence on the phone. And he said, what do you mean? I said, well, if you had done your job, they wouldn't be failing after six months. You know, here I thought we were good friends, so I could say things like that, but I should have probably been a little more careful in how I worded it. Um, but I meant it. Uh, and, and, you know, we, our friendship survived. We still contacted with each other, but um, I, I meant it. And he probably didn't agree with me, but I meant it. And so, to me, there's a great book out there um, that, that, that's written by a Navy captain, um, uh, Turn the Ship Around. And uh, it talks about a Navy ship, a Navy submarine that was struggling. One of the things he talks about is we, we consider leadership success only while the leader is there. Well, again, going back to the, um, to the preeminent example, when I left, I felt, I, I felt that I failed. Yes, we went from 42% or whatever it was to 80% you know, of, of students at grade level. And, and yes, that was significant, and I think my teachers were unbelievable in doing that. Um, but somehow I did not create that, con- that environment that will continue that. And, and I, I, again, I don't know, you know, why did that happen? How did that happen? And so I blamed myself. So I, it, at Marine Joy, what I tried to do was a couple of things. Number one, I tried to make sure that the person who was my assistant had more responsibilities I tried to allow, and I learned that at that point, let people, more so than I did at Marine Joy, uh, or at uh, Preeminent, let them have more responsibility. Have them run the show, more, and, uh, especially toward my, now, turning around a failing school, as I talk about in there and I talk about in the article, is there are some things that are non-negotiable at the beginning. In other words, at the beginning of the year, when things are, you, you take over starting the school year, some things I can't, I, I just can't allow, and I'm not going to ask for advice, and I'm not going to, especially when there are safety issues, you know, we're leaving the back door open, we're not discussing this, you know, we're going to have a, a we're going to make sure that we do things that are, but generally speaking, especially when it comes to the academics and all, let's get input. So as the years progress, I start, and I learned this at Marine Joy, by the way, I loosen the reins so that by the third year, the teachers pretty much feel that they're running the show. Yes, they might still want to ask me for, especially when it comes to budget issues, can we have $500, $1,000, whatever it is. And most of the time, by the way, I gave them discretion. Anything up to a certain amount of money, you don't have to ask me for permission. Mm-hmm. Just go ahead. And, but when it gets to a certain amount, of course, I, you know, depending on what the priorities are. But at that point, what I want them to do is have ownership. And I think that's, to answer your question, the, the ownership then, if they have enough ownership, and if I've created a good enough organization to allow for that ownership, then the new person, the person in charge, probably will not be able to, as hard as they might try, to, to, to change that and to turn that mm-hmm. down. Now, after a year, I, of course, I mean, there's, no, there's a limit to how long, but early on, somebody would not be able to just simply, or if they decide to be a, an absentee leader, the, the teachers ought to be able to say, or the administrative assistant, uh, the, uh, the assistant uh, principal ought to be able to say, I don't care whether she or he is here or not, yeah. we know what we're doing. 
That's what I'm looking for. So as time goes on, you release yeah, it. You have away. to empower. Empower. That's, that's what exactly. you're talking about. In Very book. good point. Yeah. Empowerment. Yeah. Stop Absolutely. the bleeding. Stop. Exactly. That. Yeah. I got that from all the training we got on <laughs> medical. You know, that's always right. stop the bleeding that's first. Exactly what and that's, that's, but that's a great you know, story that you tell. If, if someone is you know, bleeding, you're not going to ask everybody for what do we do. Exactly. You're going to go right in there and stop, stop the bleeding and then learn. And then, and then, then the, the other steps. That's and right. One, yeah. of the, one of the quotes, especially from your article that hit Tom and I hard, was when you said that you should have zero tolerance for people's personal agendas. I would love to hear you expand on that just a little bit because it meant a lot. Sure. And, and, and very often you've got, you've got people who come in. I, I'll give you an example. Uh, best way to always do anything is by example. Um, I had a teacher who I hired, and this was, um, I, this was a quasi-mistake. Uh, well, it turned out to be a big mistake, but quasi-mistake in terms of how I did this, uh, my procedure. I needed a kindergarten teacher in preeminent very quickly after year one. Uh, so that summer, I, I, I desperately needed a kindergarten teacher, and I wasn't finding anyone that I was really very happy with um, interviewing. And um, <coughs> I had an, a resume I was looking at that really was very impressive. On paper, The paper was very impressive. And um, the lady was coming be, uh, to the East Coast from, I don't know where she was coming from, Indiana or Illinois, because her husband was going to be a, um, a student at seminary, uh, Duke Seminary. So she was looking for a job in the East Coast, and I, I contacted her. She sent me a resume. I contacted her. Very impressive on paper, um, and, and really on the phone, too. And she said to me, she said, um, now, you know, I've been very successful. So I called all the references, and they said she was unbelievably successful. Well, at preeminent, of course, as, as Jeff, as you know, National Heritage has a program um, with uh, the reading program. They have the math program is established. You have to use their program. And um, so um, I, I told her, I said, now, we have programs already established, but they're very good. Um, and um, if you could come early enough, I'd like to have you go through the training. My assistant principal will take care of all that. And, uh, well, you know, I, yes, I'll be glad to, but, you know, I've been using a great reading program for my kindergartners um, that's proven. I, I mean, I said, I understand but, you know, I don't have that flexibility. As a, you know, that's one of the things I, my management company really requires that we use this. And it's a good program. So um, anyway, um, she said, absolutely, if that's the case, sure. Well, she comes. We meet her. She's a very nice lady. She and her, her husband's again in seminary school, at seminary. And um, I walked into her classroom, as I do every day, um, day one, and I noticed that she was using the program that she had <laughs> used. So I said, um, I said, Mrs. So-and-so, I, um, I, I thought we agreed that I know, I know, Dr. Stein, but I'm telling you, this program is proven. I said, I know and I understand what you're saying. And we went through this little gyration between us, you know, and um, I, I said, I can't, I really, I wish I could. I wish I could. And maybe at some point I'll let you, I'll be glad to set something up for you where you can demonstrate it to the, educa- the curriculum director for, uh, for the organization, and maybe, maybe we can kind of think about this. But until then, I, I'm really kind of... Well, sure enough, my assistant principal started walking in there regularly, and uh, she started using our program, and then she reverted back to her own. Mm-hmm. So agendas. Yeah. People ha- she had her own agenda. Um, and, and at that point, you need to take very a- swift action right. because people will have their own ideas, and that doesn't mean that they're wrong necessarily, but 
unfortunately, un unless you're convinced, ultra convinced that they are right, uh, you may have some things that are, but that also sets a bad example because the other three kindergarten classes, I had four of them, um, are not using that program. So she, she could not relate to them. She could not plan with them. She could not, and that created, again, that hurts the culture. The culture right. So we're back to that again. So now we're back. Who sets the culture? The leader. Mm -hmm. uh, what do I do? Well, I, I mean, she ultimately had to leave the school. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, I mean, I, wish, I, I really was hoping it would work out because I think she was a great teacher. She was convinced that she, at some point, she just said no. She had her own agenda, and I don't know why I couldn't see that earlier on, but I, I was convinced that she was smart enough to figure out that. And I explained to her that this is not my decision. This is the organization's decision, but it right. didn't work. Right. So... Um, you have to start, you know, agendas, uh, people will have their own agendas, and the leader needs to decide. If it's an agenda that could potentially benefit the organization, let's share. Mm -hmm. Let's find out what, what makes this work as opposed to what we're doing, or is it better than what we're doing. If it's not, then you need to take swift action, and in this case, um, yeah. uh, I ended up having to let it go. And where I failed as a leader is I didn't always have those conversations. So I was losing credibility with those other three people, as you right. talked about, you know, you know, letting certain people kind of have like the Barry Bonds, you know, mentality of, well, they're a really good teacher and they get good scores. Well, but it's eroding everything, you know, down the line. Exactly. Exactly. Because everything has an impact on, mm -hmm. and again, it goes back to culture. Mm -hmm. Not to beat that point to death, but really that's what it boils down to. And... Um, Culture eats vision for uh, breakfast, right? Exactly. Or lunch, exactly. Or <laughs> there you go. Or any meal. Excellent. All right. So in in wrapping up our conversation, we've taken a long journey, starting with your work with the military, how that compares to being a school leader, through everything we've talked about with culture and leadership, um, and so people who are listening to this right now, probably more than not, are about to start a new school year or have just started a new school year. And they're going to be working on something new. They're going to be building on all the things that they've that they were working on through the past. What advice do you have to school leaders launching into a new year with new new expectations, new kids? Well, and, and, and yes, as, as we begin a new school year, what a great opportunity! What a phenomenal opportunity to really set the tone and to to make to make your school the the, the very best. And um, and, and I, I would I would suggest that there are a lot of things that especially the leaders ought to be thinking about doing. Uh, number one, you need to take stock of yourself and, and evaluate your own leadership style. Is it the right style for your school? Is, it, is this the style that will make the school succeed? Um, and, and that style, there are different styles. You know, the, it, for, the models for leadership, there are so many. You can t talk about situational leadership. You can talk about transformational leadership. You can talk about transactional leadership. What is best for your school? Uh, I have found, for me, transformational leadership was the best. Being a change agent, especially for schools, and especially if we're talking here about schools that need um, to, that, that are not doing well and need to change. They need a transformational leader. They need a, a leader, a transformational leader is someone who not only understands that change is important uh, and is not afraid of change, but someone who understands that working with people, motivating them, uh, getting people excited about the job is what's the primary, what, what her or his primary role is going to be in that position. 
Um, so you're transforming the organization. And if we're talking about schools, especially schools that are not doing all that well, or even a school that's got maybe at 55, 60% of success, but wants to go to 80 next year and 90 next the year after, and maybe within three or four years, be at that 95 percentage. Um, you need to take stock of your leadership style. Figure out what's working and what's not. Um, at, at that point, once you do that, do an audit. Do an audit of your school. Find out what your school's strengths are, what your school's weaknesses are. Before the school year starts, I don't care if it starts next week, you know, look to see who are your strongest teachers. Who are the teachers that you can depend on most right now? And what do you need to work on with the, the rest of them to bring them up to that level uh, of, of strength? Um, and at that point, when you're working with, those, with, with the teachers, you, you're now kind of trying to create that environment. You're, you're, you're bringing everybody together. Who are the mentors? Who are your informal leaders? Many people don't think about this very often. And as a, as a school leader, as a Marine Corps, as, as a Marine leader, uh, I look for my informal leaders, the people who are not, don't have a title, but they gain and have gained the respect of the within the organization. So we don't think about them very often. And I used to look at those, try to find those people and say, I want to talk to them. I want to make sure that they understand more than anyone else what my goals, my objectives are, because I know that if I can get them on board, then they, their support will generate probably a greater level of support from everyone else as well. So you take an audit, you figure out who you have, what your strengths are, what your weaknesses are uh, as an organization, and then you, you basically, as you start the year, you, you, you create an environment that you're not afraid to make quick changes if the changes are necessary, but more than anything else, you want to find out why things are, are be done the way they are before you make any significant changes. So some things, for instance, if there are safety issues, yes. If there's a bullying issue, you take action immediately. But the rest of them, you, find, you, you kind of evaluate. And as the year begins, you create a communication system within your school where it's clear the teachers understand that when they can come to you and how. So, in other words, my door was always open. And I told the teachers, you walk in whenever you want. If the door's closed, just knock and come in. I don't care who I'm talking to. Now, you'll, you'll see a parent in there yelling at me. Probably a good time to just back off unless you have an emergency and there's, somebody's gotten hurt. But at that point, if you think you can wait, just wait a little bit until the parent finishes with me and <laughs> they've left and, and the, the air is clear. But generally speaking... Come in and talk to me anytime. I did the same thing with my teachers, my, um, uh, with my um, uh, parents. And I told them, you, you come in and see me anytime you want. Understand right from the beginning that your time is when nobody's in the building. Morning or afternoon, that's your time. When you're at home, and hopefully you're not neglecting your family, and I prefer you don't, but that's your time. And if you have to work a few extra hours, well, that's too bad. That's the, that's the message I would like to leave with, especially the school principals. I'm just so sorry that you had to work and stay up till midnight to get something done because, you know what, if you don't want it, then just go ahead and find another job. And, and I, I, I get very frustrated with people who are looking for a good lifestyle while they're doing something as meaningful as being a school uh, leader. Mm -hmm. Th this isn't the time. You know, maybe someday... You know, it, it, when you're retired, you can go ahead and do what you want to do. Right now, there are people depending on you. And, I, and the, the last thing I would, I would leave them with is, this isn't about you. This is not about you. This is about your school. It's about your students first, your teachers, 
the parents and the community as a whole. And, um, and I would say that as you begin the school year, think about your attitude, think about the way you're, 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 you're evaluating what your roles and responsibilities are, put that all together, and then tell yourself that right now we have a job to do, and keep communicating, keep working with your teachers. Uh, that doesn't mean you have to, by the way, doesn't mean you have to have a lot of meetings. That doesn't mean you meet every week. And my teachers once asked me, said, you know, we're meeting every week, and my first year, yes, I did not, I wasn't going to get away from that. I wanted to make sure, especially in each school, we were failing, a weekly meeting, and I told them sometimes we may not have much to cover, although we always did, but I still feel more comfortable. This, do this for me. Second year, my, one of my teachers came to me. She was representing everybody else. She said, you told us the first year was yours and you wanted to have a meeting every week. Can we talk about that? Sure. Can we have a meeting every two weeks? Absolutely. If that's what you guys want, I think we're okay. We're, we're okay now. We're, we're on safe ground where we need to build on what we've done, mm-hmm. but we're not in danger of, 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 uh, of failing. Um, and so, yeah, let's, so it's not about the meetings, but it's communicate. Be out there as a school leader. Walk. The more you walk around, the more you know what's happening. And I'm not just talking about how the school is doing. The more you know about how the students, what the students are thinking, what their reaction is, what the culture of the school is, how the teachers are responding to each other, the more you're out there, the more you see. And you want to be in that position. Do that especially at the beginning of the year, hopefully throughout the year. But at the beginning, just kind of listen and pay attention. How are things going? And, uh, and then get everybody together and at your meetings, this is what I saw. This is what, can you tell me what we need to do differently? Or did I see it? Did I not see it the way I should have? Am I, do I need to get a different vision, a different perspective? Um, and, and let the teachers help you. And uh, let the, the staff help you. And, um, and ask for help. Ask for advice. Ask for ideas. And if you do that at the beginning of the year, you'll set the tone for the rest of the year. I hope that helps. I think it does. I think it does. Well, thank you, sir, for, for sharing your experience and your knowledge with us. I feel like we've just scratched the surface, so maybe uh, sometime down the road uh, we can get you back to talk sure. a little bit more. Yeah, happy to. And where can folks find your book? Is there a, a, a website they can go to? or, or? I, I don't have a website, and I personally didn't ever want to create something like that. Um, but, um, you know, the book is obviously available on uh, online, um, whether it's Barnes Noble, Amazon, or through the publisher, um, and 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 they're welcome to you're welcome to give people my my email address. Um, we'll make sure we send it out when we. Yeah, yeah I'll be I'll be happy to answer any questions. When people want to call and ask for, I I, I, uh, I do this because I really honestly believe what I said earlier. Our educational system is it needs it needs the attention of, of, of the right people, and if I can get the right people to think about it, hey, I I think I've done my job. Hey everyone, Jeff here again. Thank you very much for listening to the podcast this week. I encourage you to go back and listen to the first three episodes with Zach Perfit, Eric Sanchez, and Mark Tracy. And, you know, as sticking around this long and listening to the whole thing, the whole hour all the way through, we'd really like to uh, send you a, uh, a gift from us to you uh, to start off your new year. It's something I know you'll need. So uh, send me an email if you'd like to receive the gift. My email is Jeff, G-E-O-F-F at leaders-building-leaders.com. I look forward to working with you this year.